Sue Halloran was a Sinn Féin activist in Kilburn in London during the 1970s and 80s. In this episode of Kahuna Akhtawahian, she reflects upon her activism at that time, on the impact the 1981 hunger strike had on attitudes on the ground in England and on the apathy that existed amongst the general population and within the media around what was happening in the North during those years. Um, I joined Sinn Féin in 1975, but I'd been involved in um, the various protests and politics around Ireland that had been going on right since the late 60s. I was at university um, when I came to London. So I, I, was, uh, I was a sort of lefty activist, women's liberationist, um, and it was involved with the anti-internment league, um, the big demonstration about internment in London, troops out started in 1975. So th- there was quite a lot of action on the streets at various stages when things happened. And the, the, re- the real watershed came when the bombing campaign started in Britain. I mean, before that, quite a wide range of my friends, sort of politicos, and people I knew in the Irish community were involved sympathetic up to the point what they knew anything about it which not many people did but once in um, 1974 with the Birmingham bomb the Guildford bomb and the bombing campaign started in Britain and there were these very high profile trials going on the jails filled up with Republican prisoners there was a definite switch towards real hostility to the IRA absolutely despise and sort of violence, um, people held, came, sort of stood back. And, and, and in a sort of strange way, because I am actually of Irish descent, so my family's from Galway, first generation, their first generation, I'd always understood about what was going on in Northern Ireland at a, up to a point. So me and a friend who was from the North went over to um, Ireland in 1975, there was a ceasefire went on a little trip and she knew various people so I would I actually went for the magazine Spare Rib the feminist magazine at the time to find out what was happening with women so we went to Derry we went to we stayed with friends in Craigan we met Mary Neelis we went to Belfast and stayed with various women and we met lots of women and and then we stayed with the family in Armagh and it completely blew me away in so many ways because it was the real sight of soldiers on the streets in the back gardens, the just general feeling of soldiers creeping around with submachine guns around the supermarkets. And then I was impressed by the fantastic politicization of the people. I'd never met people who were such a politicized community. I just never met it. I'd heard about it from other revolutionary situations. So politically, I was very, very impressed. And then the other thing was I had met um, some of the uh, sort of Sinn Féin people coming up at that time who impressed me with their political nous, their strategy, their amazing approach. So when I came back, I felt that um, country to everybody else I knew thought I was completely mad, that I wanted to kind of speak out for what I'd seen so that people would have a voice over here, the Republicans in the North would have a voice here. And so I joined Sinn Féin, which was the only organization at that time which was really speaking on behalf of the people. So I joined Sinn Féin, I'm just going to background because 
it was a time when Sinn Féin was, is, it was just beginning, it was very tiny, it only operated in a few of the big cities. So in London we had four or five commons in different areas and I was in Kilburn. And it was mainly consisted of uh, Southern Irish um, immigrants, older or younger, who come over for work. And so I wasn't quite an unusual person to have in it, but it was very welcoming. We aimed to be a very visible little group of street activists. And we had a huge banner in green, white and yellow with provisional Sinn Féin emblazoned large and proud, which was a very transgressive thing to do at that time. Uh, we occasionally went out of our areas to the big London, central London um, troops out movement demonstrations, where we weren't always very welcome as our message was seen as too extreme um, to appeal to the broader British population. Um, we also held pickets outside Downing Street um, and outside Wormwood Scrubs prison, where Irish public and um, political prisoners were held. But most of our activity was local in the Irish community, collecting money um, in the pubs, selling Republican news and holding little vigils and demos. Um, with more police usually in attendance than demonstrators. What I want to emphasize here is that we receive virtually no hostility or aggression locally. I'll give a couple of examples just to give a flavor of it. In 1976, my husband and I, when I was pregnant with my first child, were raided at dawn by 12 special branch armed officers with, dog, with a dog and taken off for a few days to Paddington Green Police Station. I feared that the landlord who lived upstairs with his two kids and wife and who were completely apolitical would throw us out of the flat for bringing trouble on the house, but they didn't. They were always endlessly friendly and courteous to us. Um, and later, when we had moved house in 1981, the middle-aged couple who are also Irish below our flat tol tolerated with great good humour the full-size coffin we kept in our shared hallway throughout the hunger strike when we used it on our vigils nightly in Kilburn Square, even though they had to struggle around it to get into their front door. Basically, the Irish in Britain were intimidated by the Prevention of Terrorism Act and by the extreme hostility to the IRA of the general population, which kind of they, they suffered um, from a sort of by second hand, a bit like the Muslim community does today in Britain. And um, were constantly harassed at the ports where they went over to home, um, dawn raids and all that. Um, but we had a lot of tacit and sometimes practical support. And often they approved of our open protests while not wanting to put their own heads above the parapet. And they deeply disapproved of what the government was doing in Ireland. Just to give one last example, which shows this very clearly, and which was a big event for us, it kind of defined the whole sort of sad way that the hunger strike was received in this country. Belfast Sinn Féin asked us to organise a delegation during the hunger strike, um, of a, hun a delegation of 100 hunger strike relatives to visit London with some sort of minders and helpers along. The aim was to meet as many influential people as possible, sort of last ditch attempt to make some impact and publicize the demands and the sufferings of the hunger strikers and their families. Now, in some ways, this was a success. At the time, it felt 
during it, it felt like it was a success when we were doing it because we raised large amounts of money from big Irish building contractors and dance hall owners. And I remember they'd say, yes, you can have the money, but don't say it was us that gave it to you. So it was all very discreet, which largely funded this big event and the trip. Um, lo all local Irish supporters and Irish people willingly put all the relatives up in their houses, including we had piles of people sleeping everywhere in our house. Lots of bacon and egg breakfast produced. Um, remember my daughter came downstairs, she was three, and she said, mummy, there are a lot of mans asleep on the floor. So <laughs> anyway, so many foreign embassies received delegations. A press conference was held in a central, prominent central London hotel. And the Camden Irish Centre hired out their largest hall for us with the bar, food, music, capacity for having speeches. Um, and fundraising. And it was a very big gathering of people paying to come, mostly Irish people and other political supporters in, also on the left, see. But in fact, very few prominent British people or organizations with any influence agreed to meet the delegation. None of the big embassies, you know, not the American embassy, not the sort of seriously influential embassies. Um, the press didn't report it, not even the, the Irish press in Britain, even as a human interest story, let alone enabling the political voice to be heard, even though hunger strikers were now dying one by one. I feel like crying even when I think about it now. By the time the hunger strike happened, I was in my late twenties, early thirties. By then I was married and had a couple of very small children. And we'd been involved in another hunger strike. So the first thing I did when I joined Sinn Féin was that Frank Stagg had gone on hunger strike in 1976. So we'd been through that process of protest where nobody was in the slightest bit interested. And I think really at the time of the, the hunger strike happened, it was a quite a low point in political interest in Britain as to what was really happening in the North. There was an interest in the dramatic events that were happening, the fact there was a hunger strike. There was an interest in the fact that there was bombing campaigns going on in this country, but there wasn't an interest really in any sort of political ideas as to why this was all happening. As a result of the bombing campaign in 74, I mean, two things happened in Britain, one connected with what was going on in the North and one connected with what was going on here. One was the prevention of terrorism that was brought in in 1976. And that put a kibosh really on general broader sympathy within the Irish community particularly, because it was very, very difficult to legitimately protest without spilling over into seeming to support the IRA, for which was an offence on prevention of terrorism. And I was arrested twice on the Prevention of Terrorism Act and held for several days. It was all fishing expeditions and questioning and a lot of Irish people were very scared and had been, had been detained under the Prevention of Terrorism Act. And then the other thing which changed everything, as you know, all this is well documented, was the, um, the withdrawal of political status for prisoners. So in the period leading up to the hunger strike, we'd been involved in Sinn Féin in campaigning for the five demands. And also, in supporting in various practical and political ways um, the hundreds of prisoners in jail in Britain who were also claiming special category status of whom Frank Stagg was one, he was the first and Michael Gohan. So we've run through all this ready. 
you know, somebody had died, two people had actually died. So when, when the hunger strike started, that's where I was, living in Kilburn with two babies. So as to whether there was a change when Bobby Sands was elected, we would have expected there would be, and many of our members went over to help campaign. I didn't because I had babies at home, so I didn't go, but many people did. And there was absolute elation and amazement, of course, and joy about this, because it, it, we felt, like all of you did, that it would prove to the world, to the government, that this, would, this was a different situation now. They did have support. And at that time, I was the, um, I'd got a job for Sinn Féin by then as the London rep for international contacts. <laughs> it's my grand title. <laughs> the result of which, my phone number was in all sorts of documents like Irish directories in London. I used to get, after that, I got so many international phone calls from CNN came round and set up in the back garden and interviewed me and um, the, the, the Hezbollah phoned me from Iran. And, you know, it was like, and all kinds of Europeans. So from internationally, it made us sort of really busy. But actually, actually it didn't make any difference on the ground really because the politics of Britain didn't change at all. I think there was, it was just a case of battling on against these illegitimate, you see, the criminalization had really worked in the minds of British people. It's just bad luck for them, these, these hunger strikes. It's self-inflicted. So I don't feel that, that, that that was an immediate change. I think that it's well documented what the actual change was, which was that gradually on the ground, other elements of other political parties in this country who had tried to be active during the hunger strike, like in the Labour Party, Labour Committee on Ireland, started issuing invitations to um, Northern Irish figures like Adams. But uh, that really happened as a result of events in Ireland, which, as you know, the acceptance of electoral politics. So the changes here were completely contingent on the changes there. And it wasn't really until, until Sinn Féin started standing that there was a, a sea change in, in, in British politics so that they could come and sort of meet the British politicians. So us personally as Sinn Féin or Irish people were absolutely devastated by the deaths on hunger strike. I mean, we, we are very much in the Irish community and every single night of the hunger strike in each of the areas where we had Sinn Féin Cummins, which because Sinn Féin was an integral part of Sinn Féin in those days, with a place on the Ard Collier and delegates and everything to elections. Um, we just had vigils with placards with all the names and faces. So it was all just such a terribly sad and devastating time to be such an isolated little part of just the only people we could talk to was phone calls to the north, you know. So it was very, very. So we were a bit defeated by it, to be honest. Just in terms of Sinn Féin itself, um, as a result of the move to electoral politics and the policy from the North, which was completely correct, in my opinion, that it wasn't that, that a lot of people in Sinn Féin in Britain didn't agree, uh, Sinn Féin was discontinued as an organisation in this country because they didn't really need people jumping up and down sort of supporting the IRA anymore because they were trying to get into the mainstream of political engagement so they could go on telly and 
meet politicians and that was the start of the peace process. So for us, that was the end of a sort of way of working politically. From then on, it was way, whether you could find your way into working at the ages of the Labour Party or whatever. Well, it, it's a, it was a very strange period because looking back, you know, you, for anybody young today, it's hard to sort of remember that this was a time there was no internet, there was no social media. Um, the only way you could communicate was by phone call, by map newspapers we used to sell on Foblot. And it was a very sort of enclosed and isolated existence. And during that period, pr my previous political colleagues and friends on the left and in sort of women's liberation and ex-university friends, and my family in Ireland because <laughs> were mortified that I was involved. I remember when I was arrested under the Prevention of Terrorism Act in my, when I was pregnant with my first child, and it was in the papers in, in Dublin that I would have been, you know, there was three people held under the Prevention of Terrorism Act in London in Paddington Green Police Station. Oh my God, they just couldn't understand it. So it was, I didn't really care at that time. It, and if you compare it with the way enemies of the state were, were treated in, say, Germany with the, with the um, Red Brigade and uh, Bader Meinhof, we only had low-level harassment, really. Unless you could be proved to have links to what they call terrorism, you were just subjected to your letters being opened, your phone tap, police car, city, uh, a special branch sitting outside your door. But that was just the way it was for about five or six years. When it was all over, and they discontinued Sinn Féin. I mean, to me, that was absolutely politically the right thing to do. But some of my Irish sort of the guys in in the in the neighbourhoods, you know, the building workers, which most of them were, they were just totally pissed off with it. They really wanted it all to carry on. I think a lot of them became very much sort of hostile to the peace process in the end. They were the sort of hardliners, really. In fact, they, I'm sure they were. But for somebody like me, again, it wasn't like Germany, where a lot of activists during that era would have been blacklisted. I, I just carried on my life. I, I went into teacher training and brought the kids up. And I carried on being good friends with, because I'd met a lot of the leadership, like Tom Hartley, Jim Gibney, Joe Austin. They were all sort of these great people I'm, and other people that I knew. I was still on the phone, but my way forward politically as a very political animal was completely blocked. Once you got that profile, you couldn't then stand in the Labour Party. You couldn't move up. You couldn't take office. You, even in 2010, um, when I had some quite sympathetic Irish friends in the Labour Party, because I joined the Labour Party eventually after Tony Blair honourably did his work for the peace process. I joined, um, I, was, I was asked if I'd like to be a councillor, not, not that I ever would have wanted to be a councillor, but other people were saying, you know, if you, well, they'll ask you if you've ever done, been in a near political party, which would have been distributed on the Labour Party. And although you're not in Sinn Féin now, the fact that you were could be used, you know, if you stood by the enemy, sort of thing, just the way it was with um, Corbyn when he finally became elected. So. It was a funny sort of transition into a not very political life for me that I hadn't really wanted, but that's just a personal. There's not many people like me who did that, so. But my life wasn't, you know, undermined from then on. That's a very interesting question as to what the impact on British people's interest in the north of Ireland is. 
one of the threads I've seen since the time when I was in, involved in the hunger strike, which at the time for me made me feel very alienated from the English political scene because of the complete lack of humanity really. Um, and the lack of interest in understanding why it was happening. And I have seen a thread going through right up until now, was whatever happens in Northern Ireland politics, there's not either on the ground or in the political class, a, a great will to understand and identify and take it seriously, apart from in a passing way. I think they thought the peace process basically is that sorted that out. Now they can have their little fights over there. You know, the, the unionists here are not thought of as English, they're thought of as Irish. Nobody understands them. They think they're as mad as coops, just like the other side, to be honest. So I think a thread that for me, looking back, reflecting through, a thread for me has been increasing the continuing indifference, negligence um, of the British people and the British po politicians to the North. To the situation in the north and that was ultimately exemplified in the whole Brexit process which never clearly saw impact on, on, on Ireland. So that's one thing that I, I can't feel optimistic about at all. I think there's an ignorance and an indifference that is absolutely deep and young people don't know anything about it anyway. They don't know about the war in the north. It's history. Maybe I'm a cynical old thing now, but <laughs> I wouldn't do anything different. I know I wouldn't. I mean, logically, somebody with my education and background might have been better to stay head down and work around the scenes, but nobody did that at the time. They didn't. Once the politics started again, then politicians did. But so, but one of the things that I most um, feel pleased about on my, my judgment at the time was that having got to know the people having been to the north and then going back and forth to get briefings because I was obviously had a position in Sinn Féin in England I was so um, impressed at the time as I said before by the strategic intelligence complete um, dedication and broad perspective and sort of humanity of the people that I met both on the ground and in the, in the political jobs in, in the North. And I have absolutely seen that following through all through the years. So I've got of nothing but admiration from the way that Sinn Féin leadership has always handled every stage of the process politically. I mean, and now today with Mary Lou and Michelle, it's all exactly as I would have thought it would going to be, you know, if I'd had looked forward and I'm nothing, I've not been disappointed by, you know, people I put my trust in then, I think they've amply proved they were really worth standing up for at the time. You know, even in that funny little way in Kilburn in 1980s, it, they certainly have. And, and I'm always very proud that I, I knew those people, even though I don't have much to do with them these days. But um, I mean, one of my little stories, which is one of the best things in my life that ever happened to me, was when we got MPs elected into Parliament, admittedly they don't take their seats, but they have an office and an, and an administrator. And I, I know, I know, I used to know her quite well. And I used to go and help out in the office, you know, just doing like 
menial jobs because it was because the greatest fun was going to the office and getting my pass and going in into the Sinn Féin office in Westminster. I think who'd have thought well, this would be happening now after all those years of when we were just sitting being vilified. So I, I just find great sort of personal amusement in that. So we was right basically. <laughs>